0: A history of the film industry and of filmmaking can only be complete with an accounting for filmmaker D.W. Griffith and his most important work, The Birth of a Nation. Birth of a Nation, which was released in 1915, is easily the most problematic film in American history, maybe world history. On the one hand, the content of the film is incredibly racist. On the other hand, the quality of the storytelling and the film's impact creatively and commercially on the film industry are undeniable. Today we'll spend a few minutes talking about D.W. Griffith, his life and career leading up to Birth of a Nation, and then we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what it was that made Birth of a Nation so impactful on filmmaking and the industry. I will link a couple of books in the show notes that I had read preparing for this. The first one is a gigantic tome called D.W. Griffith, An American Life by the film history legend Richard Schickel. And the other book is a very short one called D.W. Griffith by Charles River Editors. David Wark Griffith was born in Kentucky in 1875, which, remember, is 10 years after the end of the U.S. Civil War. His father had been a Confederate colonel, and D.W. grew up very poor. When he was an adolescent, D.W. decided he wanted to become a writer, and he was given the advice that no one can become a good playwright unless he or she is also a good actor. So while working on his skills as a playwright, he also begins pursuing acting roles which I believe was also some advice that Quentin Tarantino may have received, that if you want to write and direct films, a good way to be better at that is to be an actor. So you'll understand how to work with actors, how to find the drama in a scene and find the conflict. So DW gets a job as a reporter for a local paper in Kentucky, And then eventually decides he needs to leave Kentucky if he wants to really become a a playwright and and work in the theater. So he ends up doing what a lot of people did back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He basically rides the rails as a traveling hobo between 1896 and 1907 looking for work. And by the mid-1900s, he eventually settles in New York City and becomes a starving playwright and stage actor in 1907 griffith gets hooked up with a guy named edwin porter porter was a senior guy at edison studios Uh, yes that edison thomas edison edwin porter is important because he made a film called the great train robbery in 1903 you can go find it on youtube it's like 12 minutes long it was an important part of film history because the great train robbery was a short film that was uh, a, a little story a little fictional story it wasn't just like a documentary or shots of people walking through the streets of new york or something it was actually a real and at the time very exciting story when you go back and watch it now though it feels very primitive of course there are no real characters there's just some guys who rob a train and some people on the train being robbed but at the time it was an extremely important film that really pointed the way forward for what films could be which is these little fictional stories that could really thrill people so griffith meets edwin porter griffith pitches him a script porter doesn't buy it but he does start casting griffith as an extra in some edison movies griffith will eventually move from the Edison Company over to a major competitor of theirs, the Biograph Company, and he'll have a lot of parts in Biograph movies. Eventually, he will start directing some Biograph movies and quickly become their number one director. And while at Biograph, Griffith will produce an absolutely astonishing number of short films. He'll make between just 1908 and 1910, his first three years with Biograph, He'll make like 300 short films in those three years. In 1914, he'll make his first feature, which was called Judith of Bethulia*. Biograph didn't really want to make feature films. They, like a lot of the theater exhibitors, they didn't think it made a lot of economic sense to be making feature films. The way they saw it, you can't charge much of any extra for a feature film, so why would you make them? It costs more to make, and you can't charge much more to, to the customers. But Griffith, having made hundreds of short films at this point, he wanted more. He wanted to tell bigger stories. So he will leave Biograph and set up a subsidiary production company within a a larger film company called the Mutual Film Corporation. His first film there, sadly, is a film that's been lost. It was called The Life of General Villa, as in Poncho Villa. They actually... I can't believe this. This is insane. The deal they worked out with Pancho Villa, who was actually running this revolution in Mexico at the time, they would go film actual battle scenes, not like staged. They would film actual battles with Pancho Villa and his guys. And then they would get to use the footage in movies. And in return, they'd pay Pancho Villa for this. So, really, film producers were literally funding revolution in Mexico. Incredible if we would still have that footage, but sadly, apparently it's all gone now. But even so, now that he was working on feature films, and not just short films, Griffith still felt like the films available to him were simply not big enough. He'd told all the little stories he wanted to tell. He had something bigger in mind, something today what we'd call epic. He didn't know what it was yet, but he knew he had a big idea, a big initiative in him somewhere. And that's when he came across what would eventually would become The Birth of a Nation. The Birth of a Nation was based on a novel by a man named Thomas Dixon called The Klansman. And yes, that does refer to the KKK. The book was about post-Civil War Reconstruction era in the South. Griffith, having grown up not long after the Civil War in Kentucky, which is in the South, He identified with, I think, some of the subject matter and the storylines, but more importantly, it fit in with the broader goal that Griffith had at the time, which was making what we might call today the Great American Epic. Most movies at the time were either Bible stories or adaptations from old European literature. Griffith really wanted to make the Great American Epic story by Americans about American stories. And there had been a movie recently about the Battle of Gettysburg, which had been quite successful. So Griffith put this concept of the Civil War being a good topic together with his desire to make a great American epic story. And this book seemed to fit the bill. The structure of the film would be fairly simple. The first half would be uh, up to and during the U.S. Civil War, which would have a lot of great and elaborate battle sequences. And the second half would be during the Reconstruction. And it's really in the second half where the majority of the racist elements make their way from the book onto the screen. And it's why the movie is so horrible and uncomfortable to watch now. The white Southerners were cast as basically innocent victims, and African Americans are cast as these villains taking advantage of them. But as I said at the top of this podcast... We're going to sidestep this, the content of the film and focus on the filmmaking and its impact artistically and commercially on the industry. Force of the Nation would be an enormous gamble. It would be the most ambitious film ever made by anyone in the world. The eventual film would be over three hours long with a complex story for its time. The initial budget was over $40,000, and it would eventually go two and a half times over budget and end up at just over $100,000 in 1914 money, which is about $2.5 million or so today in the early 2020s. What's most amazing about the scale of the ambition and the budget required is that, remember, there had been no blockbuster movies at this time. The idea that you could spend forty thousand or a hundred thousand dollars on a movie and actually make your money back, let alone a realistic profit, that was most people thought that was insane. But such was DW e. Griffith's track record of making quality movies, and such was the hope of some basically gamblers with a bunch of money who were willing to stake him on this very unproven idea. The film that resulted stood as a summary of everything that had been learned in filmmaking to this point, and also served as an arrow pointing forward for the entire film industry. It was exceptional for its time, not exactly because of a lot of innovations. There were a few innovations. It was the first movie to film at night. They used phosphorus flares to see at night and film battle sequences. Also, I believe it was the first movie to feature an original score rather than just having an orchestra play other music. But these specific innovations are not what the movie is known for. What the film did and its lasting impact on the creative aspects of filmmaking were that it brought together all of the most important parts of filmmaking and delivered all of them at a high level so that when you put all the pieces together... A complex storyline with rich characters, beautiful cinematography, high quality production values, you put it all together, the result can take your breath away. It can transport the audience into the world of the movie and they forget where they are and they feel swept away is actually the way a lot of people recall being in the theaters seeing it for the first time in 1915 critics and audiences alike recall feeling an overwhelming sense of awe in seeing this film it's one of those situations where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts when everything works all these major building blocks of a great movie when they all come together Well, it's like George Lucas, uh, I think, is quoted as saying, movies are binary. Either they work or they don't work. And in that very Twitter-length sentence, I think there's a lot of truth. When things click, when the story and the characters and the technical aspects all come together, magic can happen. Lightning can strike. And that's what happened here. The movie just worked, and everything came together in this magical way. And what amplified the audience's sense of feeling swept away was this epic scale of the film. And the way Griffith helped achieve it was by including hundreds of extras in key scenes throughout the film to make the audience feel like these characters that they've gotten to know early in the film are caught up in these world historic events. This goes back to the Irving Fallberg episode, talking about every great film needs a great scene. Well, Birth of a Nation has a few. I believe this was actually the first movie to feature hundreds of extras in any given scene. This was not done back then. And Griffith did it at considerable cost, uh, overruns with the budget. But he knew how important it would be to making the audience feel uh, that sense of epic proportion that he wanted to see. There are a couple of sequences in Act 1 around the Civil War. Some of them are battle scenes that are really quite dramatic, and you really feel like there's a real battle going on because there's so many people on screen with cannons going off. The other is a much quieter shot. That absolutely took my breath away when I saw it. It's uh, family sitting on a hillside having a picnic. It feels like a very small, intimate shot, But then the camera slowly pans to the right and you see this beautiful vista and then you see hundreds of soldiers marching off into the distance. And it's just this transition from the small intimate family to the vast epic proportions of the military that creates a a feeling in your stomach that you cannot really describe. There's also a sequence at the end of the film. It's a rescue scene with, unfortunately, the KKK coming to rescue a family who's being attacked by a bunch of African Americans. Uh, Watching today in the 2020s, it's uncomfortable to watch such racist subject matter. But at the time, people found that sequence extremely thrilling, and they were absolutely blown away by how suspenseful and exciting it was. The film was incredibly popular around the country. Uh, We'll never know how many tickets were sold because records were poorly kept and lots of theater owners underreported the grosses and the number of tickets they sold so they could keep more money for themselves. Yes, Hollywood has a long tradition of cheating uh, each other out of money. It ran for 48 weeks at the Liberty Theater in New York City, which was its primary premiere location. Most people report that it was certainly the most profitable film in history for over 20 years until Snow White came out in 1937. This was aided by another innovation of Griffith and his producers, ticket price increases. Typically, a movie ticket would run around 10 to $0.15 back in 1915. For Birth of a Nation, they charged $2 per ticket. It almost certainly generated over $60 million in box office on its first run alone, which, by the way, is like $1.8 billion in 2023 money. And that's before the second run of the film, which also made tons and tons of money for and more of the local theater owners who kept a much, much larger percentage of the money than in the first run not only did Birth of a Nation enrich Griffith and the owners of the film, the people who backed him financially, it also created an ecosystem of wealth for distributors and theater owners. And a a huge example of this, just one example is Louis B. Mayer, we talked about a couple of episodes ago. He owned some theaters and a distribution company in New England at the time. And the Birth of a Nation is what enabled him to develop his real first pile of wealth which he leveraged to become a film producer eventually leading to him starting mgm and making with irving Thalberg the most successful film studio in the world in the 1920s and 30s you can trace all of this back directly to mayer's wealth generated by showing the birth of a nation if the film's legacy in filmmaking is that it showed filmmakers what was possible from a storytelling and production perspective, the kinds of stories that could be told, the scale and grandeur of what could be done, then The Birth of a Nation's legacy for the film industry is that it was sort of the first blockbuster film. And it provided a proof point that you could spend what seemed like an insane amount of money, $100,000, and generate not just your money back, but you could generate millions of dollars in profits. You could generate massive returns that ticket prices could be raised, not a guarantee of success necessarily, but at least a possibility of success. When we think about the film industry today and as different as the world looks, the blockbuster strategy that dominates Hollywood today can trace its roots all the way back to Birth of a Nation. After Birth of a Nation, Griffith would continue to have a film career. He would never achieve the heights of Birth of a Nation, commercially or creatively. He would make some very good, even great films. He would make a a film called Intolerance soon after Birth of a Nation. Many people believe this was sort of a mea culpa, an apology for the the hatred and bigotry of Birth of a Nation. The themes of intolerance are exactly that. It's people's inhumanity or intolerance to other man throughout all of history. He would also make a, a very good movie called Broken Blossoms. But Birth of a Nation would be his high watermark. And really, within a few years, his career would be in obvious and long-term decline never to fully recover he did make some sound films but ultimately griffith did not successfully transition to the sound era and his career would end soon after to summarize both griffith's and the birth of a nation's legacy the film brings together everything that had been learned up until that point and then pointed the way forward Creatively and commercially, it showed the world what was possible with filmmaking. Audiences would pay up to see characters with more complexity, stories with more elaborate narrative arts, and films with higher production values. Audiences didn't want to just watch movies, they wanted to get swept away by them. And regardless of how terrible and racist the specific content of Birth of a Nation was, The movie did provide a blueprint, an architecture for how to do exactly that, and that blueprint still exists today in many ways.